following audio is a sermon from our Advent Sermon Series. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit scmoline.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Romans 5, 1 through 11. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now been, we now received reconciliation. This is the word of the Lord. My name is Pastor Sam. Um, if you were here last week, you may remember I've, uh, I've been fighting off some, some sort of infections, and uh, it's left me laid up pretty good and uh, pretty incapable in a lot of day-to-day stuff, and, uh, and that has been really hard. Uh, as a guy that just likes to grind and get after it and accomplish what's out in front of me. Um, but the Lord has been using this time uh, to bring healing to my body. Um, but even more importantly, he's, he's giving this time as an opportunity to see growth in our church body. Uh, at Sacred City Church, we, we always have this mentality that, that we're kind of like a, a teaching hospital. Um, the church, this idea of the church being a... A museum of saints, right? That everybody's all kind of got their stuff together and everybody's got church figured out. But really, the reality is the church is a hospital for sinners, a place where Jesus calls those who are broken and wounded to come in. And so there's also a sense where we're developing and training men and women to become ministers in whatever capacity that might be, whether that's uh, church planters, pastors, preachers, missional community leaders. I mean, just you run through the whole thing. Um, and this has given us, uh, us an opportunity to, um, to bring in, uh, over the next couple of weeks, two of our residents who are actually stationed uh, at Sacred City Church in Davenport. Um, today we have Bryson with us. I'll get to introduce you here in a minute. Um, next week we'll have Kevin with us. Um, these are guys who are hungry to teach the Word of God, to grow in their skills as expositors of the Word of God, um, of, of pastors, all this stuff. And so we want to give them the opportunity to do this. Um, and so it's a great blessing to me to sit back and rest and for these guys to step into some of the heavy weight that 
uh, is required to, to be moved here when we're preaching God's word. And so I want to bring Bryson up here. I want to pray for you, and then I'll send you off to the, uh, to the pulpit. Is that all right? Yeah, man. This is Bryson. Bryson, uh, Bryson is from Kentucky by way of Texas. Yeah. Uh, he and his wife, Emma, and their two boys, Silas and Canaan, which are two strong biblical names, by the way, uh, have joined Sacred City Davenport, and I get to spend some time with Bryson on Mondays and staff meetings and sermon prep and just interact with each other. And so Bryson has been really excited to jump in and, uh, and do this, and so I want to pray for him. Um, and thank God for him. Father, I thank you for Bryson uh, and that, that he's here this morning eager to teach your people the word of God. I pray that you would fill him with your spirit, that uh, his words would not be his own, but they would come from you, Father, um, that we would receive them as such and hear the truths, the eternal truths that just get deep into the cracks of our hearts and offer us life. And so I pray that your spirit would move um, this morning in this space in such a way that would bring life-giving work I pray that you would use Bryson in a mighty way this morning, that you would give him a confidence uh, in the Holy Spirit. I pray that you would give him uh, clarity of mind, precision of speech, God, and that you would uh, enable him to do what you've called him to do this morning. I pray, God, that all this would be to your glory and for the church's good. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, Bryson, get after it, buddy. Good morning. A few months ago, I was uh, listening to a Matt Chandler sermon, and he said something about, um, he was talking about an app, and in the app, uh, he was talking about how awesome it was, and he said after he like fiddles with the app, he feels like he could punch the devil in the face, he's so hyped. I didn't know what he meant until this morning, because this worship set was on point, because I feel like I could punch the devil in the face right now, and, and not run away. Uh, but as, as, as uh, Pastor Sam mentioned, my name's Bryson. I'm one of the pastoral residents over in Davenport. Uh, and we moved to the Quad Cities specifically for the residency program. Uh, we were originally from Kentucky, and then by way of Kentucky to Texas to the Quad Cities. So uh, this, is, this is kind of a confusing thing, and I've spent the last six months trying to explain this in a way that everybody can keep up. So see if you can follow the path to sacred city. So, we are from Kentucky, and when I say we, I mean me, my wife, and then Silas, who's downstairs. That's only three, though. There's, there's four of us. So, we moved to Texas, where I worked as a youth and a young adults pastor in Texas, and we had our youngest Canaan there. Uh, and when we had Canaan in Lubbock, Texas, we were probably there for another six months or so and uh, was really feeling uh, a burden for the church uh, because it seemed like the state of church that we were in wasn't lining up with what we saw in Scripture. So to make a long story short, I, drew, I grew kind of discontent with that, the way ministry was going, and on a lunch break I had one day, I uh, stumbled across a residency program on YouTube um, of Sacred City, I, probably, I thought these guys probably, they seemed cool, but either the applications were no longer being taken or they were, there's, there's probably something theologically wrong is what I assumed. Um, and, it, and it turned out not to be the case. They were still accepting applications. Uh, they were solid theologically, so I sent mine in. And three months later, we're traveling across the country with two toddlers and a truck full of stuff. And, and we're here. And, and we've been enjoying our time here. We've been really loving the Quad Cities, loving Sacred City. Um, 
and so while I know I'm new to you guys, you guys are Quadsidians, is that right? Quadsidians? And so uh, I do want to thank all you Quadsidians for your hospitality towards us, and, and we're excited to continue to grow, continue to grow in pastoral ministry, continue to grow as a family, and continue to grow as a church family. Now, I wasn't supposed to be here until next week, like Sam mentioned, um, and then also, as Sam mentioned, he's not been feeling very well these last couple of weeks, and so that reminds me to remind you to be praying for your pastor. It may seem like something that's obvious, um, but it's something that we can tend to pass over quite frequently. Uh, so in our rearranging, it reminded me, hey, let's, let's pray for your pastor. Um, not only does he have the responsibilities of pastoral ministry, um, but the responsibilities of church planting as well. And then not only that, he's a husband, he's a dad of three kids. I only have two, so imagining another one in there gives me nightmares. Because now you're outnumbered. It's not man-to-man anymore, you've got to play zone defense. And then not only on top of that, I don't know how many of you know this, but Sam's a Raiders fan, and this is always a tough time of year for those guys. So... So be, be praying for your pastor, encourage him. There's always next year. But we've got, a lot of, we've got a lot to cover this morning. So let me pray for us, and we'll try and get going and get done with this in a timely manner. Let's pray. Father God, I want to thank you for your love. God, I want to thank you for your grace. God, I want to thank you for calling a people to yourself as the church and then calling these people together here this morning as the local church. There's something that's, that's beautiful about the saints joining together to worship you, to praise you, to bask in your love, to embrace your grace. And so God, this morning I pray that you will allow us to put off all the things that can so easily distract us and let us focus on the goodness of God. God, as we hear your word, will you speak to our hearts As we encounter your spirit, will you change us and mold us and shape us into the person and the people that you've called us to be? And it's in Jesus' name I pray, amen. So we're in Advent right now, um, covering a a, a list of topics, and and this week where we got switched up, we're going to be in love this week. It was supposed to be joy, now we're going to be in love. And while I was thinking of love... I thought of this. We are a people that are infatuated with love. We, we love love. We, we read books about love. We watch movies about love. Hallmark has made a profit out of making the same love movie 600 slightly different ways. <laughs> and, and after doing a bit of research, I, I discovered something that actually probably seems quite obvious now that I think about it. But, but 65% of all songs are dedicated to love. And I really noticed this when writing this sermon because it was hard to not accidentally drop in song lyrics to love songs when you're writing a sermon about love. We, we listen to love songs, we watch love movies, we read books on love, we make major life decisions with love in mind, and we even we, we form political opinions based around this concept of love. But we have a problem with this love. 
The, the, the dilemma that's inside of love is in the mystery that it encompasses. What is love? If we were to poll every person in here and ask them and ask you, what is love? The likelihood is that we would have very divergent and, and possibly even contradictory answers to that question. Love is a confusing topic, and we certainly haven't aided to the confusion of the mystery surrounding love either. In our, in our efforts to define love, we've subjectified it to fit within our realms of comfort. Our confusion with love and our infatuation with love are at odds. We desire instant gratitude. We desire instant satisfaction. We desire instant answers. We desire instant love. But we've grown weary of discovering the fullness and the purest form of love. And as a result, we have cheapened love to make it more easily grasped, more more easily attained, and even more easily parted with. In our confusion on what exactly love is, we have loosened the definition of what makes up love. And in this confusion arose this notion or, or this movement of, maybe you've heard this before, hashtag love is love. We have created a culture that has cheapened the idea of love with love is Love. We've become bored with the pursuit of true and genuine love and replaced it with our own concept of what love is. Now, maybe you're unfamiliar with the phrase love is love, so let me explain that to you. It started in the LGBTQ community, but the effects and thought process behind this movement have transcended past those in this specific group. They just trademark the phrase. Love is love means this. It's not about the sex or gender of a person, but catch this, but how they make you feel. So as long as you're happy and getting the affection and affirmation that you need to be happy, it doesn't and shouldn't matter the gender of the sex of the other person. Do you you see the issue with this definition of love? It, it rests solely on your own happiness. It rests solely on your own personal affection received and on you getting your own personal dose of unconditional affirmation. We desire to solely be told how fantastic we are, how, how right we are, how great of a job we did, how flawless our thoughts and words and actions are. And if anybody ever questions your motives or your morals or your deeds, they've now broken this chain of unconditional affirmation, meaning that they are now hateful. They are now not loving you. Love is love is nothing more than each individual person placing themselves at the center of the universe, and this results in the need to be constantly affirmed by others. And the moment that this lacks... The problem lays on the person that is proposing the idea that maybe you aren't at the center of the universe. We falsely perceive ourselves as perfect, holy, 
worthy of praise, worthy of affirmation, and with this thought process of love, the ability to grow as a person is stunted. And, it, and it continue, if, it, if the problem continues, if the problem consists and persists, then, then growing ceases. It's no longer stunted, but it is stopped. Love, ironically, has become the most selfish thing in the universe. We think, don't tell me I'm wrong. Don't tell me that I have flaws. Don't tell me that I've sinned. Don't tell me that I'm a bad husband. Don't tell me that I'm lazy. Tell me that I'm perfect just the way that I am. We have all taken on this concept of love to some degree because we all avoid being corrected. We all avoid being confronted. We all avoid being reminded that we're not there yet. When we go to MC and our sins called out, on the way home, we desire not to go back for a few weeks. We consider changing MCs the moment we get called out in our sin. When we're reminded that maybe we aren't the greatest parents in the world, on the way home, we're sitting with our spouse and they say, How can you say that about our kids? How can you say that about us as parents? Your kid's a nightmare. When we get reminded that maybe we aren't the best driver in the world with a, what do we do? We send three more back and then we give them a little bit of peace of our mind. I'm reminded in this of, of when we first moved to Texas. And I'm sure the stereotype is probably familiar with you, but if you live in Texas, you must be a grill master. You must know how to cook a fantastic steak. And so I obviously felt obligated to be a grill master. So I went to the dollar store. <laughs> That's always a good way to start a grilling story, I think. And I bought a $12, two and a half foot tall grill that I had to put on a table just to be able to use it. We went out and we bought some massive ribeyes and I was going to throw these guys on the grill even though they could only fit one at a time <laughs> so I, I, I fired up the grill and while, while it was going while it was heating up I spent all that time watching YouTube videos on how to make the most fantastic steak that you've ever tasted I threw them on I cooked them to perfection I brought them to Emma and she ate about half and so as, as, she was, as she was about halfway through the steak, I asked her, what do you think? I, I, I proudly asked her what she thought. And she goes, it's pretty good. And immediately I have the most overwhelming sense of affirmation. I am killing this dad thing right now. And then she goes, but... And immediately, I grimace. Immediately, I'm thinking, all right, let's see what you got to say. She goes, they're completely raw on this half. Now I'm mad. I push my chair back. Okay, Gordon Ramsay, 
If you're the grill master here, you got it next time. Love has changed to tell me how good I am. And we've all embraced this in some form or fashion. Now, some people will push back on this idea of love as an expression of unconditional affirmation being a negative thing. They'll say things like, well, divorce rates are significantly down over the last 10 years, so it can't be that bad of a concept that we've embraced. But what they fail to mention is that while divorce rates are down, marriage rates are down as well. People aren't getting married anymore. Now why? Because we are coming to understand that this realm of unconditional affirmation is an impossible place to live in for a period of time. Why is that? Well, because we're all selfish. We all want good thoughts and good words and good deeds done to us. We want to be affirmed in our own. If everybody is seeking what their own specific heart desires, commitment isn't just difficult, commitment is impossible. Because we are instinctively committed to ourselves first. The moment that my happiness or my affirmation are compromised, love is gone. It vanishes. When it starts to seem like I may not be at the center of the universe, I get combative. It becomes impossible to commit to someone because now we're at odds the second that one another's affirmation for the other ceases, even if just for a moment. What's wrong with that, though? Well, love is meant to be expressed through commitment. But we desire momentary affirmation over commitment. That's why 18% of marriages experience infidelity. One spouse doesn't feel the affirmation from the other spouse, and now their desires are compromised, and, and they seek what they're looking for in the next person that'll show it to them. Let's turn, let's turn to 1 Corinthians 13. I'll give you just a sec to get there. This is known as the, the love chapter in the Bible. 1 Corinthians 13, I believe in verse 11. Paul says, When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. Spoke, thought, and reasoned like a child. And if you have children, you know exactly what the Apostle Paul is talking about right here. How does a child think? I, me, and mine. Now I have two boys, and I love them very deeply. But at times, they are literally the epitome of selfishness. 
They, they don't care that you've watched Mickey Mouse Clubhouse, sorry, the same episode of Mickey Mouse Clubhouse for the last six hours. They don't care that you're going crazy and you're seeing Mickey in your nightmares. And, 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 and you decide that you need to turn it off for a second to just breathe and remind yourself that there's more in the world than Mickey and Minnie and Goofy and those guys. And so you turn it off, and now they're screaming Mickey at the top of their lungs for the next 45 minutes. And when they realize that you're not going to cave to that, they walk over and they hit or push or scratch their brother, who literally had nothing to do with anything. And when the inevitable end of this road comes, of them getting disciplined, they mumble and think to themselves, Mom and Dad don't even love me. They don't, they don't even love me. But love requires us to grow beyond this mindset. Love is expressed through commitment that we are so hesitant to give. Why are we hesitant? Because we have a hatred of no. We have a hatred of a moment of not receiving affirmation. Biblical love calls into consideration something more than your own personal happiness, something more than your own unconditional affirmation. Biblical love is more than a situationally, situationally based feeling in a moment of you perceiving that you are flawless. Biblical love is more than mere lip service. But 1 Corinthians 13 shows us, as, shows us love as something that's demonstrated. Let's read verses four through seven of 1 Corinthians 13 together. It says, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love is not simply a momentary expression of one of these, but a lifetime of devotion to all of these. Contrary to the postmodern view of love, love is love, being a constant pursuit of affirmation, self-affirmation, biblical love requires self-denial. Genuine love, pure, true love is kind and patient even when others don't deserve it. It is not exclusively a means to grow one's own esteem or resources. Real love doesn't rejoice at others' wrongdoings. It doesn't say they had it coming. Love doesn't seek to momentarily satisfy others' desire for unconditional affirmation and then turn and gossip on the person that they just affirmed. Love doesn't go, oh, Mary, congrats on the baby. And then the next person, they say, hey, did you hear about Mary? Yeah, she says it's the Holy Spirit's likely. Love perseveres even when there is every reason to walk away, when the person doesn't deserve love at all. True, biblical, unconditional love requires drastic sacrifice. Unconditional affirmation? It just creates a mess of people, a mess of fake people, who grow in hatred of each other. Biblical love isn't just exclusive to those like us, unlike this postmodern 
view of love. In this postmodern view of love, love is love, there are sides created. There are those on the left and those on the right. And we're going to spend our time and spend our lives loving people on our side and hating people on the other. Biblical love calls us to cross over those boundaries. Jesus says in Matthew 5.44, to not only love those like you, to not only love those on your side, but to love your enemies. How do we do that, though? How can we love our enemies? Well, according to 1 John 4.19, we can love because Christ first loved us. And this love, like the love mentioned in 1 Corinthians 13, something that's demonstrated. So let's go to our text for this morning. Romans 5, 7 through 8 says, For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus, in a sense put his money where his mouth was. This was a love that transcended past any preference, that, past, that, that, that transcended past political party. This was a love that transcended past any barrier set up by any enemy. So how can we love our enemies? Because as we stood there, as enemies of God, Christ loved us anyways. He demonstrated that love to the fullest extent, to the most unworthy, unlovable enemy. He showed love to those who had given him no hint of righteousness, who were not lovely, to those who would despise him, to those who would hate him. And even more than that, there was nothing of benefit that we brought to the relationship. We came with baggage. We came with red flags. We came with sin. We came with a cross. We came with a grave. But Jesus loved anyways. Let's go back to Romans 5, verse 7. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. There was nothing righteous about us that deserved the love of God. There was nothing good about us that Christ was seeking to bring use out of. We weren't one of those DIY videos on Facebook where somebody turns an old water jug into a suitcase. There wasn't new use for us. When there was nothing to affirm, when there wasn't a hint of anything to die for, when we were enemies of God, Christ demonstrated his love to us anyways. Now at just the right time, God showed bits and pieces of love to us. In the womb of the virgin, God was showing his love. It was, it was shown to us in the baby, in the manger. It was shown to us in the life of the God-man. It was brought into full demonstration on the cross that he took in our place. And in the nails driven through his hand. 
and in the resurrection of the Son of Man. In our selfishness and desire for unconditional affirmation, we place ourselves at the center of the universe and dare anyone to try and dethrone us. But Christ, who truly was at the center of the universe, the very creator of the universe, the one who sustains all things, he crossed over all boundaries and stood not at the center of the universe, but at the center of the consequences of the sin of his enemies. And as he stood there as the center focus of God's wrath on sin, he was motivated by an unconditional love for an undeserving people. Now why is this important? Well, because at the moment of there being not even a, the slightest glimpse of affirmation, Christ died anyways. Changing the enemy of God into the adopted child of God. And in this Advent season, we intentionally look back to have our affections stirred up for Christ. Stirred up for his love. We are intentional about allowing the Holy Spirit to rekindle the flame. But why? Well, because we too often lose sight of this real love. We buy into this cheap idea of unconditional affirmation and become uninterested and confused with the unconditional love of God. And so what I want to do is I want to confuse you again just for a second, but then I will ease that as we go through it and hopefully bring some clarity to that. Because when I say the unconditional love of God, I certainly do not mean that there are no conditions. Now what do you mean by that? Well first, in our cheapening of general love, we have cheapened the love of God as well. We have carried over this mindset of unconditional affirmation into the love of God. We say things like, God loves me just the way I am. God is just so pleased with how I turned out. God doesn't desire that I repent. He doesn't desire that I come into Christ. He's just kind of sitting in heaven, kicking his feet back, thinking, man, they're pleasant. They are, they are some delightful little creatures that I made. We, we've, we've turned God into this type of divine hype man who just sits back and ponders at our greatness. Now, while there are aspects of that that are true, such as God's love meeting you right where you're at, but God has a love that's too intense to leave you right where you're at. Now why? Because of the conditions of unconditional love. R.C. Sproul divides God's love into three categories. The benevolent love of God, the beneficent love of God, and the complacent love of God. 
The benevolent love of God would refer to God's good will to all people, believers and unbelievers. God has a good will to all people. The beneficent love of God refers to God's giving benefits to all people, believers and unbelievers. The Bible says the rain falls on the just as well as the unjust. We, ref- we would refer to these two types of love as, as common grace, or, or for the sake of this sermon, common love, we'll call it. But so what do we mean by God's love of complacency? Well, it certainly doesn't mean smugness. But rather, this is the love of God that is directed onto Christ first, and then all of those that are in Christ. Now, why that specific order? Well, because the condition of unconditional love was met in Jesus. He is the only person to fully meet the holy condition of God. And through repentance and belief in the gospel, he imputes the love of God onto us. The righteousness of Christ is imputed to his redeemed people. So as God's redeemed, we experience the love of God because Christ met the conditions for us. Now, how is this different from our preconceived idea of love? Well, it doesn't necessarily affirm us in our sin at all. But it affirms Christ. And it affects us. Let's go back to Romans 5, verses 9 through 10. It says, since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. So since we've been justified, since we've been made right with God, by coming into Christ, we have been given the love of God to save us from death and from hell. But if we keep reading, we see that we who were once enemies of God were in a sense given love to escape death, but not only that, as God's reconciled people, we are also being saved by Christ. Now what does that mean? Back to 1 Corinthians, we've not been to one yet, but 1 Corinthians 1, This says that the word of the cross is folly for those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. Those who are in Christ, who have repented and believed the gospel, are not only saved, but they are being saved. They are being changed by God. They are feeling the effects of the gospel. How, though? Well, if we go back to our text this morning, we'll see in verse five, hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. God's love to not leave us the way that he found us is inside the Holy Spirit that's being poured out into us. It's his continual demonstration of love. He is working in those that are in Christ to become more like Christ, to love more like Christ. Now, what does that look like, though? 
Well, we, we start to see the cheapness of the world's love of unconditional affirmation. And instead of contributing to its walls of hostility that it sets up, we cross over them. We love our brothers and sisters in Christ enough to confront their sin in a loving and gentle way. And we call them to repent and believe the gospel. We don't discuss their sins behind their back. We don't gossip their sin. We become enabled to love our enemies and those who persecute us by praying for them, not getting caught up in meaningless social media debates. The problem is, though, we lose sight of this. The remaining sin in our lives tends to want to be what we desire to satisfy more than the Spirit of God. We want to live in a state of being constantly affirmed and not having our sin confronted. While there is certainly a right and wrong way to go about confronting sin in in each other's lives, we tend to feel attacked no matter how it's done. When we get confronted with our sin, we either blow up on those who confront us or avoid those brothers and sisters who are seeking to love us. We call those who call out sin judgmental. Say things like, only God can judge me. And here's here's some insight. That's what we know. That's the issue. God is going to judge us. And in view of that judgment, we depend on the Holy Spirit to lovingly change us into the image of Christ. And he predominantly does this in two ways, his word and his people. That's why we don't simply affirm everyone unconditionally. We, with truth and love, call out brothers and sisters in their sin and call them to believe and repent. And we give them Permission to do the same for us. Think of it like this. A lady goes to the doctor. She's going to have some tests done. She gets the test done. She goes home. And she waits for the phone call with the results. Well, the tests come back. The doctor gets them. He looks at them and he sees that this lady has cancer. But he decides that he doesn't want to make her feel bad. He doesn't want to bum her out with all the stress that comes with finding out that you have cancer. So when he calls her, he tells her, you're fine. Tests come back good. How is that loving at all? The loving thing, obviously, to do would be to let her know what's wrong with her and work out and work with her a plan of treatment, a plan of recovery. And in the same instance, suppose he calls her, tells her the news, tells her that they have a plan, tells her that he's going to walk through this this process with her. What is she going to do? Is she going to go off on him? How dare you tell me that? 
You're the most idiotic, judgmental doctor I've ever seen. That doesn't even make sense. If she is even slightly concerned about herself, she's going to take the diagnosis and take the advice and the counsel throughout this process of recovery. We should constantly be both the doctor and the patient in this scenario. And motivated by love, confront or diagnose our brothers and sisters in Christ. But not only that, be prepared to walk through the process with them of recovery. And we also should accept the diagnosis of those in our own life, of the brothers and sisters who are seeking to love us and care for us. In this, we trust the love of God to use his Holy Spirit to continually mold us and shape us and form us into Christ until the day when love is fully manifested. In this, ad, in this time of Advent, we look back on the love of God revealed in his first coming, of his love that was demonstrated. But we also have eyes forward. Eyes forward to what? To the second coming. For the sake of love, we'll call this first Advent the proposal. Christ's first demonstration of love was his proposal of love to his people. The scriptures use this picture so often, and they even refer to the church as the bride of Christ, a bride that is being prepared. Prepared for what? The wedding day, the marriage supper of the Lamb. Revelations 21, 1 through 4 says this, and I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And the sea was no more, and I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Catch this. Provide, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. This is the day we look forward to, the wedding day, the day when the love of God is brought to full sight. It's fully manifested, the day when every tear will be wiped away, the day when we get to dwell with our God in flesh together. The day when sin and mourning and crying and grief and pain is wiped away forever. This is why Advent should transcend beyond December. But it should encompass our every day, our every hour. We ought to constantly be dwelling in the love of God that was displayed in his first coming and longing for the day of his next advent, the day of when love is on full display. And as we come to the Lord's table this morning, 
we do just that. We get to reflect on the body of Christ that was torn for us, reflect on the blood that was shared for us, shed for us as a demonstration of love, because we so often forget. And as we partake of his supper, we do so with anxious and expecting hearts. Like a bride that is looking forward to her wedding day. Let's pray. Father God, I want to thank you for your love. This love that crossed all boundaries. The love that we could never deserve, we could never earn. And God, as we stood there as enemies, hating you, despising you, you took on the cross anyways. You counted it all joy anyways. Because of your love for us. And so God, as we reflect on that love, let us also Look into the present and see how your love is changing us and allow your love to change us as we press on toward the day when love is fully revealed. The day when we get to be with our King. Where God will be our God. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you.